You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For June 26, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Building electricity transmission lines has never been easy, for a whole host of reasons that we discussed with our guest Alexander Klass in episode 50. Building them now is arguably even harder than it was decades ago, because there are just more people along the route of any proposed line who must be mollified now, and because there are now powerful politicians with vested interests in the fossil fuel and nuclear lobbies who rightly recognize that the new transmission lines being proposed today are designed to ship cheap wind and solar power, which will ultimately undercut the business case for fossil fuel and nuclear plants. But if we are to realize our energy transition ambitions, build them we must. In order to unlock the enormous potential of wind power across the north-south axis of the Midwestern U.S. and the even more enormous solar power of the American Southwest and Southeast, and then ship that power to the population centers where it is needed, we'll have to have more transmission capacity. But making those lines politically feasible generally means a protracted, tedious endeavor of striking individual land deals with hundreds or even thousands of landowners whose land the lines will cross, getting the support of regulatory agencies and legislators in every state the lines cross, and ultimately securing eminent domain authority, the right to build a line across a piece of property whether a landowner likes it or not, in order to overcome the opposition of recalcitrant holdouts. It might even require the support of federal agencies like the Department of Energy. It's just an enormous mountain of a task, one that few people would ever attempt. Today we're going to hear all about the story of one such indefatigable individual, a man named Michael Skelly, who attempted to build not just one, but five major high-voltage transmission lines in the U.S. He's the central character in a new book titled Superpower by award-winning investigative reporter and veteran journalist Russell Gold of the Wall Street Journal. You might think that's a pretty dry topic, but trust me, it is anything but, and I think you will enjoy our conversation with Russell in this episode. For quite a few years now, he and I have been correspondents, mutual admirers, and even friendly competitors in the annual oil price wager I mentioned in episode 88, so it's a real treat for me to finally have a good excuse to get him on the show. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll have a special edition exclusively devoted to the death of coal. And before we get into the interview, I just want to offer a warm welcome to our latest site licensee, the Central European University in Budapest. It always makes me happy to be able to provide our full shows and features at a phenomenal discount to an entire campus, so welcome to all students, professors, and staff of the Central European University. And if you think your university or institution might be interested in a site license, just drop us a line and we'll get you started. 
Also, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Adam Warren's new Advanced Energy Systems graduate program at the Colorado School of Mines, which has purchased subscriptions to the show for all of its students who are earning their master's or PhD degrees and aiming for careers in solving our interrelated energy, environmental, and economic challenges. So welcome all. And now our interview with Russell Gold, recorded May 17th, 2019. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Russell, to the Energy Transition Show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Today, we're going to talk about your new book titled Superpower, One Man's Quest to Transform American Energy, which just went on sale yesterday, June 25th. And like your 2014 book titled The Boom, How Fracking Ignited the American Energy Revolution and Changed the World, for which I actually wrote a book review for Nature, I found this one to be a really entertaining, fast-paced story. I mean, it almost reads like a thriller, which is kind of, I think, an accomplishment for a topic as dry as trying to get power transmission lines built. <laughs> so kudos on another great book. <laughs> Thank you very much. And there were certainly times when I wondered what exactly I was doing trying to write about transmission and trying to make it interesting. But there's a great story here and it has everything to do with politics and has everything to do with sort of dreaming of how to reorder the energy systems to facilitate the transition. The story is everything and hopefully the book captures it. Yeah, well, briefly, why don't you give us a bit of background about that then? Like, how did you go about your research? How long did it take you to put this story together? How many interviews did you do? And how did you even decide on that storyline? Because I'm guessing it wasn't obvious at first that there was an important story here. So I started working on this about late 2015, early 2016. Okay. And at the time, really my feeling was that we have had lots of books like The Sixth Extinction about how bad climate is going to become and how bad everything's about to get and how devastating this is. And I sort of began thinking of them. And those are really important books. And I certainly have read The Sixth Extinction two times and others, but they just left you feeling really despondent and depressed. And what I felt was that what I wanted to write about was people who were trying to make a difference, who were trying to confront this giant issue Amen. and put their shoulder to the wheel and try to turn the wheel. And so I started looking around. So I spent two or three months actually just learning and backgrounding myself on climate. And I sort of geeked out on characters like Eunice Foote and others and, you know, Charles Fritz, these sort of obscure people who were sort of 100, 200 years ago beginning to understand all this and build renewable energy. And we can certainly talk about them. But I ended up just sort of thinking to myself, you know, who's out there really trying to make a difference? Who's trying to, I don't want to say moonshot, but who's trying to really change the world as we know it. And a couple of people suggested that I go down to Houston and meet with this guy named Michael Skelly. He said he's an interesting character, he's been involved with the renewable energy for a while, and I had never heard of him. He was sort of off my radar. But when I went down there and met with him, I realized that he had been thinking exactly the type of questions that I was beginning to ask, which is, if you're going to have an energy transition, which is going to cost billions and billions and trillions of dollars, how do you bring in the private sector? How do you try to leverage private money to make those investments, to build what needs to be built? And I met with him a couple times and sort of slowly realized that what he had been working on was just a fascinating story and a story that I wanted to tell. I ended up doing well over 100 interviews, wow. probably about 150 interviews wow. with different people who were involved with his project. You know, I sort of went back a little and told some stories out of history that, frankly, had not gotten the kind of attention they deserved. A group of 
sort of hippie architecture students in the 1970s building a windmill on the Lower East Side of New York and being the first people to actually connect this renewable resource onto the grid and spinning their meter backwards, something that thousands and millions of people do today. You know, I just sort of went backwards, I went forwards, and the more I learned and then just dug through classic journalism in a way, just dug through thousands and thousands of pages of documents to understand what was happening and why it was happening. Right. And then I had to wait for the story to end because I needed an end to my book. I needed to find out what was going to happen with this project. <laughs> well, rather than just summarize the book, obviously I'd rather the people read it. I think I'd like to use our time today to really focus in on what this story can tell us about the perils of trying to get transmission lines built in the U.S. because I think there are really a number of very important lessons here. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Skelly's background, starting with his career as a wind farm developer, because I think that really sets an important stage here. Sure. Well, right about the year 2000, he comes out of the Peace Corps. He had been stationed out in Costa Rica and trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life. And he was a Harvard MBA, but as he said it, he wanted to be the member of his graduating class who had the most interesting job and he never wanted to wear a tie. So he was out there <laughs> trying to figure out what to do with his life. He tried a couple of corporate assignments, and frankly, they just didn't work for him, for the corporation. It just wasn't working. And he got introduced to some very early wind farm that was being built in Costa Rica off Lake Arenal. And he gets involved with this, and it was for a private company, and he finds it to be fascinating work and ends up right around the year 2000, 2001, coming back to the United States and working on some of the earliest modern wind farms that were being put up with the monopoles and Vestas wind turbines. So this is sort of after not the lattice steel towers and the very dysfunctional wind turbines of the 1990s, right. when the first modern European turbines start coming to the United States. And he starts really small. So he gets backing from the Zilka family of Houston, who had made a lot of money doing offshore oil and gas, and then sold that off to Coastal, eventually becomes part of El Paso Corporation. And they look around and they decide that wind is interesting to them. So they start funding Michael Skelly as a developer to build wind farms. And at first, 25 megawatt wind farms, 30 megawatt wind farms, and they get a couple of these built. And then they start getting more ambitious, 100 megawatt wind farms. And before you know it, they are basically scouring the country and they're looking for a couple of different things, good transmission access, good pricing, and good wind resources. And when they find those three together, they buy up land and try to build wind farms. And Horizon, you know, they emerge really as one of the three or four largest independent wind developers in the United States in sort of the early part of the first decade of the 21st century. And they're very successful. There are a number of wind farms out there. Eventually, it gets sold and becomes the basis of EDP, one of the big wind developers. So Michael Skelly, as the chief development officer, does quite well. He didn't really have much equity stake, but he ends up making a lot of money, actually, from the sale of this company. And so it reminds me of an old phrase I used to hear about the Quakers in Philadelphia, that they came to do good and they did very well indeed. <laughs> absolutely the same can be said for Michael Skelly. So right. he is really one of those first pioneers. And what he finds along the way, you know, it's not all sort of cupcakes and gravy. He has to learn how to do battle with utilities who are not exactly welcoming renewable energy with open arms at the time. He learns about the importance of transmission, the need to get a good interconnection, to be able to get onto the grid at a good place 
so he can get easy access and all the capacity he can get onto the grid. Sure. So he's sort of learning these kind of key important lessons about how do you build renewable energy. And he's getting more and more ambitious. You go from these 20 megawatts and before long, they're looking at a 200, 300 megawatt wind farm. These days, a 200, 300 megawatt wind farm is not the biggest wind farm in the world. Right. But at the time, you know, that was a major undertaking. Sure. People weren't used to these giant wind blades being driven all over the country and set up and farmers were sort of looking at them and ranchers sort of like, what exactly are you trying to sell me here? Uh-huh. And so he does that and he finds it to be an incredibly fulfilling type of process. And where were these wind farms that they were building originally? Oh, all over the place. Pennsylvania, upstate New York, upper Midwest, Minnesota, Iowa area, does a couple in California, Washington State, Kittitas Valley, he built a fairly prominent one. The, the one real place he doesn't go is Texas, you know, his home turf. And that was because what he felt was that Texas actually had done so much right that there was a lot of competition emerging in Texas, and he didn't think he was going to get the kind of pricing that he needed. Huh. And that was with the development of the Cres lines and the fact that Texas had built out the right type of transmission to accompany the wind farm development. And he felt because of that, you weren't going to quite get the prices he wanted because he was looking for places where he could get good high prices for his power in addition to good wind resource and good transmission capacity. Yeah. And as I recall from the book, one of the really interesting things about Texas was that it had actually done sort of a state level assessment of where the wind resources are as a way of sort of informing the developer community of, you know, here's where the opportunity is, which I wonder if other states were to do that, if that wouldn't really be a great way to get some of this kind of activity moving in some of the other states. Right. I know. What a novel idea. You actually sort of think through and plan ahead of time. (laughs) It's a crazy idea, but it just might work. (laughs) Crazy idea. (laughs) I came to think of this as the McKamey problem. So McKamey is this little town out in West Texas, sort of just off I-10 on the way out to El Paso. It's got a great wind resource and was very receptive to some of the early wind farms. You know, this is the beginning of the Texas boom with these new modern wind farms were being built on mesas out there. And the ERCOT and the state PUC gave certificates to so many wind farms and I forget the exact numbers, but the capacity was something like about 900 megawatts of capacity to generate, but they could only take away 400 megawatts. Hmm. And so they would constantly have to be cutting off wind farms, otherwise they'd be overloading the circuits. And it was sort of this huge problem because just when the wind was blowing and these wind farm operators should have been making money, they were having to curtail and feather their blades to avoid overloading the local power grid. So they actually looked at this and they sort of realized or were told that you needed to get your transmission in shape. You couldn't just be building wind farms wherever they wanted to. You couldn't build wind farms without adequate transmission. And so they sat down and looked at where are the parts of the state which had really good wind that we could build transmission out to. And that really was the beginning of what are called the Cres lines, which are, I think it was about $6 billion worth of spending that was socialized throughout all of Texas ratepayers. We built out this new backbone of transmission. And that's exactly the reason why at night in Dallas right now, you can get power for free, essentially, Hmm. because there's so much power coming in from West Texas. And that's one of the reasons why Texas prices, in addition to low natural gas, one addition why Texas wholesale electric prices have been so competitive for so many years. Because Texas made a statewide decision to build out the transmission lines to enable that development. Right. And the wind developers, there was plenty of private money that came in. I mean, Texas blew through its RPS so many times that we don't even effectively have an RPS right now. Right. 
It's now irrelevant, basically. The it's market relevant. took over, yeah. yeah. Right. What we're seeing right now is that there is a development of solar in a lot of these same places, utility-scale mm -hmm. solar piggybacking right. off this transmission. We've got the transmission out there, and there's certain hours of the day when solar is really good that wind doesn't tend to be good. So now we're getting a lot of solar development being built up along these same lines. Which is exactly the way it should work. So it was, in fact, the rapidly falling price of wind in the U.S. that drove Skelly to pursue his transmission lines, even though he was also looking for where the best price is to sell it to. It was that dropping wholesale cost that really enabled the boom. Well, remember, he was an MBA, right? So right. he was never interested in going into a business that didn't make financial sense. And one of the things he saw when he was coming back into Texas and trying to figure out if he wanted to work on wind development was that much to his surprise, some of the earliest wind farms, if you looked at the numbers, that their prices were surprisingly competitive. These were subsidized prices, but it's not as if you had to pay 2x what gas was anymore. The prices right. were starting to come down. They're starting to be competitive. And he sort of looked at that and said, you know what? Those numbers are only going to come down even further, and I want to be there when they do. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. So as you tell it, the wake-up call, I think, really came in 1999 when a utility in Texas called Texas Utilities <laughs> yep. offered a retail rate for wind power of just four cents a kilowatt hour, which was on par at that point with natural gas-fired power. And until then, people had not considered wind power to be a real competitor. As you said, it used to be, you know, 2X or whatever. So now we've reached gas parity. And then shortly after, several other Texas entities, including Enron, had offered wind at that price. And another company called Texas Wind Power had offered it for considerably less at 2.85 right. cents, after which Austin's municipal utility offered wind power at a subsidized rate of just 1.7 cents, which is way below everything else, lowest right. price for power from any source. And that astonishing price decline actually coincided with a broad Republican push for utility deregulation across the country at that point. And in Texas, Governor George W. Bush signed that into law that same year. So would you say that this confluence of factors was key in kicking off the wind boom? Well, yeah. So first of all, let's give credit to Enron. I mean, Enron gets blamed for everything. But in this case, Enron, they had bought one of the early turbine manufacturers. And so they weren't a wind farm developer, but they wanted to sell their turbines to all these new wind developers. So Ken Lay, the former chairman of Enron, had the ear of George Bush, the former governor of Texas, and was sort of saying to him, hey, you should get behind wind. This is real. And there's a great moment that Pat Wood, who at the time was the head of the Public Utility Commission, went on to be at FERC for many years, where Governor Bush said to him, hey, we're serious about wind. You know, Let's make this happen. And Pat Wood sort of nodded and said, okay, let's be serious about wind. So let's give Enron some credit. But no, look, deregulation mattered. And it mattered because it broke open the old vertically integrated utilities that had been built on reliability to enable the spread of electricity. But that was decades ago. And in more recent decades, what these vertically integrated utilities did was they sort of became this locus of political power. You need to help out this county and generate some jobs. We'll build a natural gas plant down there. We'll build a coal plant down there. We'll build a nuclear plant down there. And with deregulation, it sort of breaks that wide open. And all of a sudden, it becomes, well, what's the most competitive price out there? Where can we get electricity for the lowest price? And that's really what we saw in Texas and elsewhere. And I think much to everyone's surprise, instead of being blown out of the water, I mean, this didn't happen overnight, but renewables suddenly started to compete and they started to compete quite effectively. And we're sort of jumping ahead a little bit in the story. 
But that wouldn't have happened, I don't believe, anywhere nearly as quickly if we had still had these regulated utilities because utilities have been reluctant to bring in a lot of new renewables, by and large. It's only in the last couple of years where they sort of woken up and realized, hey, wait a second, we can make some money. We can really rate base this transition. So let's do this. Yeah. And it was the access to these newly open competitive markets that really created the market opportunity for these developers. Right. And, you know, Michael Skelly was a developer. The whole generation of people who are now involved in building up wind and solar and agitating for it were basically developers. And they all got their start in these new deregulated markets. Yeah. So without that, they would have probably gone off and, I don't know, worked for Facebook or Google or done something else. <laughs> God forbid. So you tell another two important side stories, which together with deregulation and opening these new competitive markets, I think really helped to kick off the wind boom. We don't really have time to get into these today, unfortunately, in any depth, but one was a federal ruling in 1977 that said that a private owner of a generator has the right to connect to the grid and push power onto the grid. And the other was that in 1978, President Carter signed the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, or PERPA, which required utilities to buy power from independent generators if the price was competitive. Right. And after a big fight that utilities pitched with FERC, the Supreme Court ruled in 1983 that PERPA was valid and essentially gave birth to this new industry of independent power producers. So those are the other two elements, I think, in tandem with the other things we just discussed that really enabled that wind boom and later the solar boom. Look, as we've seen with fracking and we've seen with renewable energy, you've got to get clear, consistent policy in place before the entrepreneurs are really going to get in and make these investments that can drive down prices. And PURPA was one of the most important laws because what it basically did is it, it cracked open the power grid. And it said for the first time, look, if you can go out and you can build a cogeneration plant, you can build a wind farm, and you can bring it in at a low competitive price, you get on the grid. The grid was closed. And so it was a wedge that allowed developers onto the grid. And once that was open, they started flooding in. You know, it's a great story that I tell in the book, Superpower, from Horizon Wind. This was the company that Michael Skelly was doing wind development with, where they ended up battling to get this wind farm in Western Oklahoma called Blue Canyon. And they had to fight this perpa fight and basically say, look, our prices are low. You know, we're competing against these aging gas and coal plants mm -hmm. and we can bring in the price at a much lower cost. And it was sort of amazing, even with the law on their side, they would tell these stories of, you know, they'd show up for these negotiations. They would file in court and the judge would say, all right, you got to do mandated negotiations. And, you know, AEP would send down 15 lawyers and they'd be sitting there with like two or three people trying to make this case. And AEP was sort of delaying and they, to a large extent, AEP did not, and other utilities did not want these developers onto their grid because if they don't get to build if you're a utility and you build a natural gas plant you get to rate base that you get your money out of that but if you're doing a contract with an independent developer and buying electricity from them it's a pass-through so there's right. a huge financial incentive for utilities not to take these developers and that's what purpa really did was that it leveled the playing field yeah all right. Well, let's dive into what this story can tell us about some of the challenges involved in trying to site new transmission lines in the U.S. Originally, in 2009, Skelly and his business partners created Clean Line Partners, a transmission company, which planned to build five different high-voltage transmission lines. The first was called Great Plains, and later it was renamed Plains and Eastern. Where was that line intended to deliver power from and to? So it was going to pick up 
later wind and solar in the Oklahoma panhandle. The panhandle are three counties. It's the little appendage that juts off north of Texas and all the way out to Colorado. Very sparsely populated, dry land ranching, so you have very large land positions, and great wind and great solar. And actually, you pull up a map of where there's really good wind in the country and where there's good insulation for solar. There are only a few places where it overlaps. And the Oklahoma Panhandle is one of them. So this is a great renewable resource. And they were going to pick up about three, three and a half gigawatts of power there. And they were going to move into the southeast. Because if you remember, and this is still true, the southeast does not have a lot of renewables. It doesn't mm. have wind resources. And until recently, it really hadn't begun to develop its solar resources. Right. This was an era when if you looked at what was going on in the southeast, you had companies like Southern that were trying to build big nuclear plants, another big nuclear plant in South Carolina. Southern was building Kemper, this giant project that was going to create clean coal. What ultimately turned out to be white elephants, I suppose we have to acknowledge that the, the nuclear plant Vogel, it might not be a white elephant. It's going to be an expensive elephant, but it might actually end up producing power. The jury's still out on that. Well, VC's summer nuclear plant in South Carolina definitely is a boondoggle and a white and elephant, too. as Absolutely. was Kemper in Mississippi. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, mm. it, look, the jury's still out. Vogel might or might not ultimately. I mean, we know it's going to be massively more expensive, but that was sort of what they were doing in the Southeast. Right. And one of the ideas was, well, wait a second. We've got all this cheap power. This is the best place in the country to generate renewable energy. Let's just move it directly from Oklahoma into the Southeast. And what they wanted to do was to get it into the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority's grid. Because the TVA has this great grid. At one time, they wanted to build like 10 more nuclear power plants. They built up this really strong grid that would accommodate all of that. They didn't build the nukes. So there's lots of capacity on the TVA grid. And they figured if we can get it into the TVA grid, we can get it south to Atlanta, we can head up north into Washington, and then opening from there to Philadelphia. So it was really a way to get wind power from the Great Plains into the eastern part of the United States. And so that line would have been, what, about 700 miles long? 700 miles, yeah. And it had to cross Arkansas, right? Yeah. And I should say, they were going to do a high-voltage DC line. The idea here is instead of doing an AC line, it's going to be a DC line to most effectively move the power without loss. Right. Okay. So we had to go from Oklahoma across Arkansas and then connect to the TVA grid at a connection point near Memphis. Yeah, that was the plan. That's what they went and started pitching TVA to, and they got the interconnection agreements. And TVA's initial response was, okay, well, what kind of price can you come in at and is it competitive? And that's where they really started talking. But that was the idea. Okay. So what were some of the challenges involved in crossing those states? And how did Clean Line Partners attempt to overcome those challenges? <laughs> Well, there turned out to be lots of challenges. I and mean, the first challenge was education, whether that was in the state house or the Department of Energy. Sort of like you're going to build a HV what? You know, it's HVDC. Mm -hmm. And the first thing they had to really try to convince people was that this was not some crazy new technology, but this was basically off the shelf technology. You can go to Siemens, you can go to ABB, test it. We knew what it was going to do. There was no technological risk involved here. But then the real hurdle that they started running into were these regulatory moats. States, when they built their electricity regulation systems, they designed them to basically lock in the insiders and keep the outsiders out. And we saw this in Arkansas really clearly. The rules were written to protect the incumbent utilities. You know, sort of think about it like the chicken and egg problem. In fact, it was called the chicken and egg problem by Colette Honorable, who was on the Arkansas PUC and then went on to be on FERC, 
when they went into Arkansas, they wanted to build a line, but they needed to do that to get the permission to do that. They needed to be recognized as a utility. But under Arkansas law, they couldn't be a utility unless they owned assets and had customers. Mm -hmm. So there was essentially no way in. And nobody had tried to come in for a while. Right. Entergy owned that system. And politicians and regulators were more than happy the way things are. So they had this trouble getting through this regulatory mode. And then the other issue that they began to encounter was NIMBY. It really comes in several forms. But mostly what it was, was that people were feeling that they were being left out and taken advantage of. And here were these sort of out of town, out of state developers who wanted to build a power line across their land and that somebody else would be enriched by it. Somebody else would benefit from it. And, you know, there's a real big lesson here for climate change. That is that it wasn't enough to come in and say, look, this is for the common good. This is going to help all of us. We're all going to get cheaper electricity. It's going to help drive down emissions. That was not a winning argument in Arkansas. That You need to make sure that people who are being imposed upon get some sort of benefit. And one of the rallying calls that Clean Line encountered was no eminent domain for personal gain that what the new company wanted was they were going to partner with the federal government and they were going to get permission to use eminent domain for the three, four percent of the people who didn't want to sell to build this power line. Because without eminent domain, there was no way to build a 700 mile linear project. You know, that certainly speaks to some of the typical hurdles in siting that we discussed way back in episode 50 with Alexander Class. Mm -hmm. Having a transmission line cross a state without actually dropping some power in that state <laughs> was a frequent <laughs> obstacle, it seems yep. here. Yep. The first conception of the project was you were going to go straight from Oklahoma all the way down into Memphis, crossing Arkansas, and that was it. And eventually, they had to modify their proposal to have a drop-down point to drop 500 megawatts in mm -hmm. County, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And one of the things Michael Skelly says is he wishes from the get-go he had done that. Huh. Oklahoma was going to get tax revenue. The ranchers out in the western part of the state were going to get very big checks to let wind turbines and wind developers use their land. The TVA was going to get access to low-cost renewable electricity. And what was Arkansas going to get? Well, they were going to get a bunch of headaches with, um, you know, somebody building across their state. Right. And nobody likes to feel like they're in flyover country, mm -hmm. that someone else is going to benefit and they're going to pay the price. These were the problems that, that Clean Line faced. Right. They diligently went and addressed all of these problems one by one. They met with the, the people who were opposed. They worked with the federal government to, to get permissions. So they could use eminent domain. And they eventually even got compromises to get their certificates of necessity so they could build electrical equipment transmission lines in Arkansas. You know, I think it'd be useful at this point to talk about some of the villains in this story, because in the end, at least as you tell it, it really was the actions of a few determined individuals that sunk Skelly's dreams here. I think I'd like to start with... U.S. Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, because throughout the struggle to build the Plains and Eastern Line, he vociferously opposed the line and attempted a number of parliamentary maneuvers to kill the project. And it seems his motivation was essentially that he had deep connections to the nuclear industry, thanks to the three major nuclear plants that TVA operates. And he hated wind in any place and in any form. And it was like a personal <laughs> antipathy, it seems. And yeah. he even took up the cause of killing the Cape Wind offshore wind farm project off the coast of Massachusetts 
because he owned some undeveloped property there and he didn't want to have to look at any wind turbines in the distance. All of which sounds like, you know, an intensely personal motivation to me. And if you think about this all in the context of like, we have this collective societal challenge to deal with here in the form of climate change, that kind of intensely selfish perspective on this just seems so villainous to me. <laughs> but maybe that's my perspective. Well, first of all, we'll talk about Lamar Alexander in a second. You mentioned that this sort of this was Skelly's dream. And I think it's important to remember that this wasn't just some pipe dream, that he got this fully regulated. This was a project that it was ready to be built. And they were going to bring in three and a half gigawatts, mm. enormous amount. That's what the output of three nuclear units, yeah. three gigawatts of wind into the Southwest. But I mean, this was a feasible project and it was amazingly Herculean what he was able to accomplish. And he raised a lot of money in pursuit of it too. Right? There's a, a lot, lot of, of people that got behind Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And these are big institutional investors, the kind of institutional investors, frankly, that are going to need to get off the sidelines and get involved in funding this energy transition when they see that there's money to be made. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now our special news segment, Call Death Watch. Item 1. Three of the five largest mining companies in the world by revenue, BHP Billiton, Rio Tinto, and Glencore, have all indicated this year that they acknowledge their role in contributing to climate change and will not expand their coal production any farther. In May, BHP Group, the world's largest miner, said that thermal coal faces a challenging outlook and a risk of being phased out sooner than expected, and that the company has, quote, no appetite for growth in energy coal regardless of asset attractiveness. Expecting coal demand to plateau and decline, BHP will not increase its coal production any further, and instead will focus on the growth markets in renewable energy, electric vehicles, and food production. 
Item 2. Australian mining giant Rio Tinto, which sold off its last remaining coal mine last year, has pledged to align itself with the Paris climate targets, publicly support renewable energy and action on climate change, oppose government subsidies for coal, and insist that the industry groups in which it participates do the same or risk losing the company's support. In April, the company said that it recognized global warming as, quote, a critical global challenge. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.